Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. One of the things I do appreciate, yes, there's many things, but one of the many things I should say I appreciate about the Heidelberg Catechism is how it uses a first-person pronoun throughout the Catechism. You know, what is my comfort or your comfort? Um, and, and answering then my only comfort, or you go through the Catechism, you see again, I, I, my and so you're, you're reminded that this faith is not just a hypothetical faith. It's not just something that maybe if we believe it, it works out in the end. But the reminder is that individually, we need to take hold of Christ. Uh, if we don't take hold of Christ, we have no life. It's that simple. If, if we're not taking hold of Christ by faith and living out of gratitude, we have no redemption. Now, one of the criticisms people can give of, uh, this, of the catechism as a whole is say that it's only individualistic. In other words, it's just my faith, my Lord, my God. And it's not understanding that there's a church, a communal nature of the Christian life. And this is where the catechism is moving into what I appreciate of reminding, yes, I am called to take hold of Christ by faith, even as a minister, but also the church itself is a community that walks in the same Christ and there's a corporate nature to this Christian life. And so when, when we look at this, another thing that this Lord's Day is addressing that people may criticize or they say, well, there's only one Lord's Day or one question and answer specifically on the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 53. And therefore, this, this catechism or the Reformed faith doesn't really have a high view of the Holy Spirit. Well, hopefully, as we go through the doctrine of the church, we, we understand that the catechism is a very high view of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we don't push the Holy Spirit to the background, as some traditions may criticize us of doing. Uh, we actually see the Holy Spirit at work, not only in terms of our personal lives, but also in terms of the corporate lives in the body of Christ. And so how does this understanding of a corporate nature of our redemption truly encourage us? In other words, why not just have my Christ or my Lord and not really talk about the church? What is the catechism fundamentally driving home for us in terms of our Christian life? So we'll see first the bringing of the gospel as the disciples are called to go out to the nations. Secondly, raising disciples. And lastly, being continually nurtured. It isn't a one-time, one-and-done thing. And so then, considering the bringing of the gospel, in terms of the Spirit's work, we, we ask, you know, what is the call of the church? Uh, some traditions may say that the call of the church is just to relieve uh, the needs of the poor. Some may say that the <clears throat> call of the church is to mystically encounter Christ somehow. Uh, doesn't really put a, you know, the, the, the doctrines down. just says you have to encounter Christ somehow. 
Some may say it's just living a moral and ethical life. And as we do this, we really have Christ. Now, if we're honest, we can't say these things are necessarily 100% wrong. I mean, certainly we are called to share one another's burdens. That doesn't mean that the call of the church is just to go out and to relieve the burdens of the poor as its primary mission. We are called to encounter Christ. I mean, this is what the gospel does. The Spirit works faith in our hearts. But at the same time, it's not just some mystical, mysterious experience where we don't really understand the gospel or know the gospel or know what God requires of us and lays out for us in his commandments or in his law. We also understand that, yes, we are called to live a moral life for the Lord. But if we're going to base our redemption uh, solely on our morality, we're going to be people who are hurting. We're not going to, to meet the standard. We can't meet the standard in our own strength. And so clearly, as this catechism is laying out the nature of the church, it wants us to go beyond uh, just a very simplistic understanding. And so what is the catechism teaching us? What does it want us to learn? Well, the catechism wants us to understand as we look at question answer 65. Where does this uh, faith come from? What a wonderful answer. The Holy Spirit works us in our hearts. Now, we might say, oh, see, it's just a mystical encounter. But it's through the preaching of the gospel. And so the Lord uses his means to cultivate faith and to call his disciples unto him. Now, it's important in terms of this answer that we understand the preaching of the gospel, not just the preaching of the word. Article 29, the Belgic Confession, drives home the marks of the church, that the mark of the church is that we have the pure preaching, not of the word, but of the gospel. And this is done for a reason. There's something deliberate behind this that we can't minimize. The Roman Catholic Church is one that would say, yeah, we teach the word, we preach the word. And our confessions are saying, but we're reformed. We, we don't want to just be taught the word. We want to be taught the gospel, the good news of Christ. We want this preaching primarily communicated to us that we understand who Christ is and what he has done. Going on then, we think about question and answer 67. Uh, that's the Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel. So this Lord's Day is driving home the importance and significance of the preaching of the gospel as a means of grace. That it's through this gospel message that we are those who will continue to grow and conform to Christ. So right here, we're, we're understanding the corporate nature of the body of Christ. Corporately, we're, we're called in terms of the preaching of the gospel to understand who we are, who God is, uh, to be humbled before his throne of grace, not just in terms of being convicted of our sins, but also in understanding he is God. We are the creatures. He's the redeemer. We are those who are the redeemed. And so we understand right there the pecking order, corporately, individually, as well. And so here we, we turn to the Great Commission. I thought it's helpful to turn to this once again. And we have a scenario where... The disciples think that their, their rabbi, their teacher, has failed. Christ is not the Messiah. That's in their minds. He's gone. He's done his mission. He's died on the cross. He's dead. Move on. We were duped. 
We have here the calling of our attention, the 11 gathering together. Judas himself, recognizing what he has done, has decided to hang himself, to take his own life. He doesn't understand. Christ's death could cover for his sin. But Judas himself doesn't really necessarily believe Christ is a Christ, obviously, at least as we understand it and see his apostasy in terms of how the gospel presents him by his fruit. And as he ends up taking his life, what is he saying? Well, this Christ isn't the real Christ either. So we have, we can say, well, Judas is a bad guy. But even the other 11 disciples, they don't know what to do with this because we have right in the text, they didn't believe. They, they didn't believe this is really the Christ. They, they don't understand this is beyond their comprehension. And so as they gather together on this mountain, it's important in Matthew's gospel to see this transition of a mountain. So you have uh, Christ being baptized, you have Christ being taken to a mountain to face the satanic temptation. You can think of Christ starting then Sinai moving to Zion as sort of a, a picture of what's going on here and reliving Israel's history. And so right here we have Christ in glory, resurrected, having completed the work that the Father has given him, seeing who we are as individuals, doubting whether or not Christ is sufficient or good enough, or whether Christ has really done his work. He's done his work. He's glorified. It's not that Christ is a problem. We as humans are the problem. We have the weakness. And as they gather together, what does Christ call them to do? As he calls them together, he doesn't just rebuke them. This is something that, that always, I, I just marvel at this. You think of Christ teaching his disciples, teaching his disciples, and then they show up in doubt, and, and you wonder, why isn't Christ turning them and say, really? All, all the teaching I've done, and, and, and you don't believe me? And, and here we are, and you would think that Christ would then have this rebuke for them. Come on, guys, figure this out. But he doesn't do that. He calls attention to what he has done. And as he calls attention to what he has done, he calls them to go and do something, to go and to bring the gospel to the nation. So he's giving this commission to the apostles, the representatives of the church, for the church to go out and to bring the gospel. And as they go out and bring the gospel, they, they bring this message, they plant churches, and they establish these communities, as we find in the book of Acts. But what are they to teach? And this is another important point. Christ says to disciple and to teach all that I have instructed you, all that I have commanded you, verse 20. So you think about this, you think, okay, we have the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if you ever feel good about your Christian life or feel self-righteous, it's pretty good to read that because it does uh, humble us quite a bit. We recognize the depth of what God fundamentally requires of us. And it truly is something where we recognize from the heart we're called to conform to our Lord. So that's part of, of what we are to teach, certainly. We think of another passage that's very significant where Christ contrasts his ethics to the ethics of the Pharisees. We think of Matthew 11, verse 28. We have the Pharisees who are laying a burden upon the people of God. And Christ himself has said, listen, you guys spend your time, you know, straining out the gnat, but swallowing the camel. But the fundamental problem is, is they're, they're worrying about all these little details that they can easily keep 
but they're not worrying about the real substance of it, the real spirit of the law, the real essence of wanting to live for Christ. And so we hear that say, oh my goodness, I, I have to conform to the Lord in my own strength. How am I ever going to please Christ? But what's the glorious gospel call he gives her? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So to hear that call is something where Christ is telling us about the success of his mission. Because this, this call is not abstracted from covenant history. We have a, a record of this in Psalm 2, verse 3, where as the nations conspire to uh, basically you know, conspire against the Lord, and they're going to take the Lord out of his glorious kingdom, and they're going to break his yoke that's placed upon their neck. In other words, in their rebellion, they're going to overpower God, and he will not be able to control them. Now, of course, we know the one in heaven laughs, and he doesn't take this very seriously. We also think of Isaiah 14, where there's a promise that the Lord's going to break the yoke of those uh, that are enslaved, that he's going to basically overpower individuals. And so now when we have this call to take the yoke of Christ upon us, this is saying that fundamentally we want to come under his tutelage. We, we want Christ to be our rabbi. We're saying, put your control upon us. As your human beings... We want to be under your authority, under your control, and we want to be your disciples. This is something radically contrary to who human beings are in the nature of the case. We're the Psalm 2 individuals. We, we, we want to rebel against God. But this call for us to understand that as we take on the yoke of Christ, as this gospel message goes forth, who is this Christ? Well, Matthew tells us in Matthew 1, verse 21, he's going to be named Jesus, that's Joshua, Yahweh saves. He will live up to his name and save his people from their sins. And so this call here to teach this gospel, to, to understand who we are, it's a call for us to understand we are set apart in Christ Jesus, individually secured and redeemed in him, but also corporately, as a body of Christ, as a church. Uh, we do not just live as individuals, but we are a body of believers, professing, celebrating, finding our life in the same Christ, having the assurance of the same gospel and the same redemptive mercy. But as the Lord goes on, and the Catechism continues to teach us that it's, it's not just preaching the gospel, we, we continue to raise up disciples. And so there's a continual learning. So we might think, well, we've, we've brought the people in. Now as they're in, in the church, I don't know what to do. I guess they, they just exist. But it's this understanding that we have to have the humility that we're disciples of Christ. We come under the authority of the rabbi. And so this, this discipleship is not a, a one and done thing. It's not that we just hear the gospel once and say, oh yeah, I believe that. I know that message. And as I know that message... I'm done. I, I've heard all I need to hear. But it's this understanding that this has to continually take residence within us. Individually, we're called to continually grow. We're called to continually conform to our Lord. We're called to continually evaluate what areas in our life are not consistent with who we are in Christ. 
This is part of our discipleship. How do I live out the call of my rabbi, my teacher, my Lord, my redeemer more consistently in my Christian life? What's lacking? What's not consistent with him? And this is where as we come together and hear the preaching of the gospel, we're refreshed knowing that here's a gospel promise, the assurance that Christ has made us alive. There's a conviction where we understand, yes, there's the reality of here's a standard, here's his law, here's his royal uh, calling for us, and I'm not measuring up, and I need to conform to my Lord. But there's also a corporate understanding that even as a church, we understand that we are redeemed in this Christ, and we have the same calling as a corporate body to ask ourselves, how do we live this out more consistently as a body of Christ manifesting and emulating this gospel call as his redeemed body? And so this is where we, we go on where the Lord commands them to make disciples of all nations. Now, as we consider the discipleship, we understand, yes, we think about the Sermon of the Mount, we think about Christ <clears throat> calling us uh, to take his yoke upon us, to uh, live more consistently in this gospel call. But we also understand what it means in this Christian discipleship. That on one hand, we, we've sort of skirted around some issues going on here in 16 through 20. Christ is one who has said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he also concludes with the promise, I am with you until the very end of the age. This is very important because Christ is laying out the significance of his resurrection. Now that Christ has been raised from the dead, there is no power that can overpower him. The very voice that was broadcast in the mountain of the transfiguration in Matthew 17. This is my son. I am well pleased. This is my son, you know, that I love. And so as a father makes this declaration... Christ shows that he lives up to the expectation of his Father and fulfills this promise. And so the resurrection of Christ, as I've mentioned before, is not just securing our end, or the, the end of our history, or the end of our lives, that we too will be raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ confirms the very gospel message. That, that we have to continually contemplate the reality of what the resurrection means. Now that Christ has been raised from the dead, it means the promises of God are set in stone. No authority, no power can overcome uh, the promises of God. What he has said, he has accomplished in Christ. This is why the disciples are shocked. They don't expect to see Christ standing before them. He died on the cross. They witnessed it. But nevertheless, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so when we think about Christ having all this authority that's been given to him and the nature of his authority, we may say, well, you know, when we hear of kings having all authority, we can think of Nebuchadnezzar, we can think of Hitler, we can think of other examples uh, in scripture times and our current times. Uh, this doesn't end well for the citizens. And so we may wonder, well, why, why is this so good? What was so wonderful about Christ having all authority in heaven and earth? Well, think about who Christ is. As I mentioned, the start of the gospel starts in a mountain with the temptation of Christ before Satan. Christ truly is tempted. Tempted to challenge the Father's word. Tempted to challenge the Father's will. Tempted to rebel. 
and Christ never fails. He begins with a mountain of temptation, much like Sinai. He then takes a role like the prophet Moses standing up on the mountain, uh, laying out the requirements and, and what it means to be part of this community with the Sermon on the Mount. And again, if you're feeling very uh, elevated in your Christian life, the Sermon on the Mount is rather humbling uh, when you recognize the standard cutting straight to the heart and how we do not live up to this perfectly as we ought. But Jesus also is one who prays on the mountain, something that also I, I find rather marvelous, that, that Christ himself, in the midst of his ministry, takes time to pray, that, that he prays to the Father. Uh, it tells us a lot about the power of prayer, uh, something, again, that I think is rather mysterious, if God is sovereign, uh, and yet what he seeks to do, he does, and yet uh, we pray to him and he hears our prayers it's a rather remarkable thing that he doesn't just say, that's already determined, I'm going to take care of that, yet he wants to hear from his children, from his disciples. But continuing on, the next significant mountain is where we think of the Mount of the Transfiguration. Christ showing the glorification, showing the ultimate outcome and projection of what he is to be and what humanity is to be. Here Christ meets with his disciples who doubt his goodness and assures them that the reality is this is where you are going. The gospel message is true. So when we start saying, well, what are we to be discipled in? What, what does this mean? Well, it means that we're being discipled and contemplating the reality of who Christ is. His church will prevail. We may have doubts. We may not have confidence. We hear of uh, all these types of persecutions and threats of persecutions, wars, rumors of wars, as our Lord says, is the end of the age. But the assurance where we fixate our minds, what we're discipled in, not only in terms of what we believe in God, but these doctrines that start um, becoming real. What does the providence of God mean? Well, in the face of persecution, in the face of war, God's going to see us through it. We say, well, what about the doctrine of prayer? Well, Christ himself prays, the Father is pleased to listen. This means that when we pray, there is something personal, something communal going on, something real. In terms of why does it matter that God is sovereign? You know, we start walking through these doctrines and what Scripture does and how the Psalms praise God for his creative acts, his redeeming acts, that these things start taking resonance within us and we continue to grow not only in a cognitive, rational knowledge of these realities, but these realities continue to sink within us as we go through different seasons of life and we continue to grow in this discipleship. But the other thing we find is not only that all authority has been given to Christ in terms of this resurrection, but the assurance he gives that he will be with us <clears throat> until the end of the age. You know, this morning we read from John 14 in the Lord's Supper. One of the things Christ wants to drive home in that is he's not going to leave us as orphans. So he mentioned in catechism class this morning as well, being an orphan in terms of this context means that you have no rights. There's no guarantee of family members going to adopt you in terms of this context. Because there's a good chance if you're a peasant your relatives are just trying to get through life as it is. Having another mouth to feed, 
they may not take it upon themselves. So having and being an orphan in the context of, of the gospel times is frightening. You don't know your fates. You don't know your future. And so when Christ says, I'm not leaving you as orphans, what a wonderful thing. He's going to be with us. We may feel abandoned. We may feel as if God is not always our shield and defender. But this isn't a problem with God. This, again, is a problem with us. This is where, in terms of our discipleship, in terms of thinking of the redeeming action of God, in terms of his resurrection that has happened in history, it's the assurance Christ is with us until the end of the age. As St. Augustine has said, or at least what is credited to him, where he says, Lord, give what, give what you ask and ask what you will. In other words, it's a consciousness, I am a disciple of Christ. Whatever he calls upon me to do, give me the strength to do it. And Lord, whatever you want, may I do it. You are God. I am the creature. So when we start thinking about the doctrines of the catechism, which again is a good thing, it's good to know our doctrines. But we have to know our doctrines so that we, they take residence within us in such a way that the sovereignty of God is not something we, we know just to win an argument, but the sovereignty of God is what really orients us in saying, wait a minute, my God is sovereign. My God is all-powerful, and he is my shield and defender. And so then we, we understand this discipleship is that continual taking on the yoke of Christ, continually coming under his teaching, continually understanding that as we're joined to Christ, that he continues to nurture us and nourish us along the way. But this nourishment continues on because we're getting into the, the sacraments and how they work with the word. And so 65 reminds us that there's a preaching of the gospel and that preaching is confirmed through the sacraments. So if people say, well, why do we have sacraments? Well, the sacraments simply stated are the visible picture of the preached word. So when we think about that, we say, okay, we've talked about uh, the death of Christ, securing his people, that those who take hold of Christ by faith are his saints. Well, what does baptism do? Baptism signifies the reality that we are set apart unto Christ in a very simplistic way, right? It designates a community of saints that are separate from the world. We say, so what does the Lord's Supper communicate? Well, the Lord's Supper communicates simply the sacrifice of Christ, the guarantee of the heavenly banquet, feasting with God, and having this symbolism come to mind. Again, it's not just individual, but it's understanding that corporate feast of the Lamb, everyone gathering together, individuals celebrating the goodness of God as a corporate body. And so when, when we think about this, say, okay, well then, why, why do we say that there's these two? And again, this is just an introduction. We say God has instituted them. So this is contrary to what you have at the Council of Trent with Rome, where the Council of Trent, they say there's seven sacraments. So our catechism is putting in writing that we believe there are two sacraments, Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism, a sign of initiation. Lord's Supper, the sign of confirmation. So in terms of why this matters and 
uh, when, when we talk about these sacraments being the sign and seal of the Lord's grace. It's important to understand that these visibly communicate to us that the forgiveness of sins is my forgiveness of sins. Uh, we also understand that the promise of eternal life is my eternal life, right? It's the body's eternal life and it's my eternal life. I individually take hold of Christ. The corporate body takes hold of Christ as we proceed as a community. And so it's by God's grace we continue. And so what does this have to do with the Great Commission? Well, notice that it's not just a preaching of the gospel, but it's a baptizing in the name of the Trinitarian God. And so this is designating a people as set apart unto the one God. Now, if we want to talk about baptism, we can simply say it's a sign of regeneration. It's a sign of the Spirit. Now, when we say sign and seal, seal isn't necessarily, um, you know, fresh locked in like Tupperware where it guarantees the effect of something. But seal is just testifying to the reality of the promise. You think of a sealed letter, right? There's an authoritative seal. The message has not been tampered with. So you have the gospel, and then you have the seal of the gospel coming from the king, testifying to the truthfulness of it. Now, in terms of, of this baptism going forth being uh, designated as, as God's people, this does tell us individually, I'm set apart unto Christ, but also corporately, we're set apart unto Christ. And so when you start looking in Scripture and looking at the deeper meaning of baptism, you think of the deeper meaning of passing into the sea and emerging triumphant, a death event, a being handed over to death, an emerging triumphant in new life. Uh, the prophet Jonah very much goes through this very experience, painting a picture of what has to happen to the people of Israel. He's cast into the sea. He's thrown down. His prayer reaches up into heaven. The Lord's the one who gives new life and the Lord is the one who delivers him out of the sea. Israel, passing through the Red Sea, same thing, emerging into certain death and emerging triumphant. It's that symbolism of passing into death and emerging as a people of triumph. So when Christ is standing here as a resurrected Lord, who says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, the resurrected Lord is saying the promise of the gospel is guaranteed. He has secured our place. And so when we think about this message and the therefore, this is just the very last thing that we want to call to our attention in these verses. When he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he doesn't say, just go make disciples. He doesn't just say, do this in your own power, and something may happen. But it's go therefore. In other words, because I have been raised from the dead and confirmed the promises of God, because I am with you until the end of the age, this gospel message will have its effect. This church will continue to exist. This church will move from this age to the age to come. This is what God is promising. His church will not cease. And so the, the call is for us to proceed in this confidence. Whenever we have our doubts, my Lord is raised from the dead. All authority has been given to him. I want the yoke of Christ placed upon me. Do we do this perfectly? Absolutely not. 
But it's that reminder that as we have the yoke of Christ upon us, what do we fundamentally desire, individually, corporately? That our great shepherd will continue to shepherd us through his word and sacrament, that he will not leave us or forsake us. And his very promise is yes and amen, because Christ has been raised from the dead. And so when we ask that question then, how is the Spirit working in the context of the church? How does this communal nature of the church encourage us? Basically, if we want a real simple answer, why do we come together, sit under the preaching of the gospel? Why do we worship? Uh, a simple, uh, nice answer is that we're getting a taste of heaven. Now, I remember as a kid that didn't always make heaven sound so nice. But another way of saying this is really giving us a taste of coming into the presence of God. It's refocusing us, reorienting us. It's making us reshape our priorities of understanding, wait a minute, this, this life is bigger than me. This life is about my God. This life is about the God who redeems. And so when we come together for worship, we, we've got to come together with that bigger picture of, wait a minute, I'm going to come into the presence of God in perfection and sing praises to him face to face in the glory of heaven. But it's not just a future reality. As I come together to worship my God, I taste this reality week after week as I gather together with his saints singing praises to my God, being called into his presence, confessing my sin, hearing of his glorious acts in covenant history, and being refreshed and knowing that even as we are a community in the midst of the wilderness, our God will never leave us or forsake us as the very promise of the gospel. As we continue to sojourn then, we should also be reminded that we're not just sojourning individually, trying to stumble our way into heaven. But we have a community of saints, a community of people, praying for us, caring for us, shouldering one another's burdens, and seeking to see us arrive at that heavenly banquet, singing praises to our God in our glorified state, knowing that we will be there at the Feast of the Lamb, and the great victory has been publicly accomplished. Let us orient ourselves in that day. Let us see the bigger picture of who we are. Let us see the, the marvelous call here in these few verses of the Great Commission. Let us walk under the yoke of Christ. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Mm -hmm.